0: What's up, guys? Luke Lambie here, and today we have our first episode of the new name, the Food and Philosophy Podcast. The aim of the Food and Philosophy Podcast is to bring together these two foreign concepts of food and philosophy into one, connecting the dots between the two for a better worldview. Food, as far as what is nutritious and where do we source it, and philosophy, as far as how to make a better use of our time. Thank you. Today's guest is Jay Feldman. He has his own podcast called the Energy Balance Podcast. And in addition, he's an independent health researcher and nutrition and lifestyle coach. What's up, Jay? Thank you for coming on the podcast. I got a little rebrand here on my podcast calling it the Food and Philosophy Podcast now. So I'm excited to have you on as like one of my first new guests. Yeah, Luke, thanks for having me. Yeah. I think it's like pretty essential to start with kind of like how I got into your like work I think because I was going down the path of like low carb dieting and yo-yo dieting and that kind of cycle of just feeling like I think I've heard you say this but like feeling like either you can feel good or you can feel um like you're losing weight and like looking good so I guess can you kind of explain that paradigm and just like kind of how I mean, it's probably a long explanation, but kind of just how like that that comes to be where people think that they cannot look good and like feel good at the same time. Yeah, well, that was something I experienced as well.
1: Um, I think what, we, what we're told is, or the kind of narrative that's out there, whether it's coming from an eat less, exercise more idea or fasting or carbohydrate restriction, low carb diets, The general idea is that our bodies are trying to make us unhealthy and trying to make us gain weight. And so we're in this inherent fight with our bodies. And if we want to be lean or healthy, we have to, there's has to be some restriction. There has to be doing really uncomfortable things. We can't eat a, an enjoyable diet. It's going to be, have to be something that we have to work really hard to stick to. And you know, the people who do the best at sticking to it and have the most willpower get the most success. And that was totally something I fell into. And I, you know, it was fully committed and had the willpower and, um, and ended up being part of the downfall. One of the things that led to the worst outcomes was sticking to those sorts of things, the low calorie diets, the keto uh, type diets, you know, intermittent ketogenic diets, those kinds of things, or cyclical ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting, all those things. And when I came across them, a different view here which really shifted everything for me and it sounds like it shifted things a lot for you too i was able to realize that we don't have to fight our against our bodies as long as we're able to actually recognize what they need and what they're asking for and we can actually live without restriction and eat calories enough calories and not constantly be hungry not constantly be uh, craving carbohydrates and have our health and lose weight or maintain leanness And and so that was
0: A big shift for me and obviously for you as well I think one of the things that most people like kind of like argue back and forth about is carbohydrates directly like I think most people kind of agree that like eating I mean besides vegans but most people know like meat is pretty nutrient dense so it's healthy but why exactly do you think the low-carb people are unable to kind of get wrap their heads around like eating more carbohydrates And specifically, sugar, because I know a lot of people, even if they eat carbohydrates, they'll stick to the non sugar ones. So, can you talk about like just why, like, sugar is a problem for some people, but not others? Yeah. Well, so, in answer to the
1: first question of maybe why we've gotten stuck or a lot of the health world has gotten stuck, I mean, I think there is a, you know, there's the hive mind, there's the tribal. Kind of mind here, where everyone is on a certain bandwagon and is has become inundated with some of these ideas that sugar causes insulin resistance and diabetes and weight gain. You know the whole carb insulin hypothesis, which has long been debunked, for lack of a better word. Uh, th- there's a number of those narratives that I think are just have permeated throughout the most of the health sphere, as you said. Maybe vegan and vegetarianism aside, and so it it's takes time to start to shed and shift those sorts of ideas but yeah those things are pretty ingrained and I do think it's very slowly starting to shift but essentially I think the there's a couple of conflationary things that are happening one that I think is maybe one that a lot of that crowd could get on board with is this idea that we have we're blaming a symptom for the problem so a lot of people have come to recognize that When it comes to cholesterol and heart disease for a while we were blaming cholesterol as a cause of heart disease and now recognize that that's more of a symptom right the cholesterol isn't causing it and that's not actually the problem there and so blood you know blood sugar levels and insulin are much the same in type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance where we're blaming these symptoms of the underlying issue and then saying well we shouldn't do anything that raises blood sugar or insulin in the same way that we used to say well we shouldn't do anything that should raise cholesterol But both of those are totally missing the point, right? Those are just symptoms. And what we really need to make sure that we're doing is fixing the underlying problem, which in the case of insulin resistance is not being able to use carbohydrates well. So coming back to your question of why might some people not do well with carbohydrates, for one, there's a a type problem. So talking about conflation, we can say carbohydrate and sugar, and that can mean honey and uh, whole fruit and maybe root vegetables and tubers like potatoes and sweet potatoes to some people they think donuts and pizza and candy those are carbohydrates and the reality there is candy aside when it comes to donuts and pizza i mean those things are really not even that high in carbohydrates to begin with they're typically higher in fat uh but also that uh, again, we're, we're making some conflations here that anything that is bad is just bad because of carbohydrates or sugar. And we're forgetting things like the influence of the polyunsaturated fats, the seed oils, the omega 6s, uh, you know, wheat, especially the modern wheat and things like that. So there's some of that conflation going on for sure. And so I think that's part of it. But then the other thing that you were getting to is there are reasons why some people might not do well with carbohydrates. And if that's the case, we want to fix the problem. We don't want to just avoid it by avoiding the carbohydrates. So maybe we'll dig
0: into that. Mm-hmm. I also think it's kind of useful to think about, like, the kind of like the stress like carbohydrate model, where like you're normally pretty um, high in stress if you're like lacking carbohydrates. So can you touch on that, please? Yeah, that was one of the things
1: that was so. Again, talking about like new paradigms and new ideas that really flip everything on on their head i mean in in a lot of these alternative low carb spheres the idea is that sugar causes inflammation sugar causes stress sugar causes increases in in oxidative stress and maybe stress hormones uh, but in reality that's not at all the case so uh, i would say the most potent anti-stress thing that exists in our environment is carbohydrates the reason for that often has to do with a relationship with blood sugar, but on a deeper level with energy, where essentially a lack of energy is what causes increases in stress hormones. And a drop in blood sugar will do that as well when we start to shift into the reliance on either fatty acids or producing glucose endogenously from like the, the liver, from gluconeogenesis. Those things rely on stress hormones. And so the best way that we can turn those processes off And turn down the production of stress hormones is with carbohydrates and maintaining a good stable blood sugar level and including the production of insulin those things are directly opposite insulin turns down things like glucagon and adrenaline and cortisol and along with the carbohydrates both insulin and carbohydrates together Uh, and so yeah that's that's huge it totally flipped things on on their head for me and uh, also it's something that everyone can experience, especially at you know, at some point when you're utilizing carbohydrates well, people will have that experience where they're feeling stressed, they're feeling maybe anxious or irritable, or their mood is low or their energy is low, and they have good quality carbohydrates, right? We're not talking donuts and pizza, we're talking, let's say, some fruit or honey, and things turn back on and they feel better and they feel relaxed. And that's the turning down of the stress hormones. And We can experience it in that way. It's also shown very clearly in the research where the protective effects of things like adequate carbohydrates is really apparent and like adequate blood sugar, where you can take, they have these studies where they take rats and they introduce some sort of allergen or irritant. And if they keep the blood sugar low, it'll kill the rats. Whereas if they keep the blood sugar higher, they'll barely be affected. Like they'll be totally fine. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the direct anti-stress and protective effects of having fuel on board. And especially carbohydrates is that fuel since that's really the optimal
0: fuel source, I would say, which I know is another controversial statement to make these days. So even though carbohydrates might be the best fuel source, I think a lot of people kind of have a problem that if they start eating them, they think that they're like unable to stop eating them or they're eating too much carbohydrates, um, specifically like sugars, like honey and stuff like that. So how exactly do you think like do you think that is a problem to be eating a lot of carbohydrates? And also, um, how would you tell someone who's like eating too many of them to like cut back or what what, what would you say to them?
1: So I think firstly in the larger sense in, in terms of what's going on here. When we're carbohydrate deficient, which is what I would say we are on a low-carb diet, we're going to be craving carbohydrates in most cases, unless we go far enough down that we're really in a deep stress state. And when we then reintroduce carbs, we're going to have more cravings for carbohydrates, especially early on when we're introducing smaller amounts, because let's say our body needs 200 grams of carbohydrates or 250 grams of carbs, depending on your size and you know, your particular needs. If you're starting out with 50 grams or 100 grams, and you're lowering those stress hormones, well, now your body's going to be wanting more carbohydrates until you're getting to that point where you're feeding it enough. That's not a bad thing. This is not carb addiction. This is not sugar addiction. What this is, is a physiological need for carbohydrates. And what's happening is we can resist that need. We can resist it using willpower for a long time. But Continuing to do that, A, comes at a cost, and B, is not actually solving the addiction, so to speak, in the same way that uh, you know avoiding carbohydrates isn't, isn't restoring insulin sensitivity. It's just avoiding the problem. Mm-hmm. And so in reality, we, it can be tough in that earlier state, but what I would say is that this isn't a sign that carbohydrates are bad or addictive. Instead, it's just a sign that we aren't meeting our needs yet. And the most revolutionary thing, again, talking about big breakthroughs and big differences in in feelings, I felt that restriction, I felt the carb cravings, I felt the hunger for years and realized only way later that I was never actually satisfying my needs until I was eating way more carbohydrates. And this was just like calorie need, carbohydrate need, all of those things. And I never actually felt what it was like to be satisfied, like physiologically satisfied in terms of hunger uh, for, for like, I didn't even know that I never felt that feeling. Mm -hmm. I would be able to, you know, binge and eat a dozen cookies or a loaf of banana bread or whatever it was and be physically full, but still want to keep eating more like Mm -hmm. that, that physiological need was not going anywhere. And this isn't, again, this is not an addiction. This is a, this is a need for carbohydrates that our body, uh, our bodies are asking for. And so when I actually got to a point where I was on a consistent basis, supplying enough, carbohydrates from good sources, I was actually able to feel satisfied after eating independently of feeling full. So I didn't have to make myself feel physically full, but I could eat what I needed and actually feel satisfied and not be weighed down with the the restriction and cravings. And uh, In the transitionary period, as you're getting to, it can be a little bit difficult. It's a transition, right? We're transitioning not only our body physiologically in terms of the types of you know uh, fuel that it's using and shifting the enzymes in the mitochondria and things like that, but also there's a shift in terms of mindset in terms of the types of foods we're bringing in and getting our bodies out of that stress state, which takes time and yeah, there's a transition there where I normally recommend trying to take it slow, trying to introduce the carbohydrates slowly and carefully and consistently because it's the way to do it that's going to result in the least likelihood of issues or weight gain but for some people, it's, and myself included, it's way easier to bring them in on a quicker basis. And normally, if there is any weight gain at that point, it will come off after. But any weight that we've lost on a low-carb diet is essentially like it, it's a debt, right? We're, we're taking out a loan. This is borrowed time. Just like on a yo-yo diet, like on a low-calorie diet, it's, it works until it, we can't stick to it anymore. And then our metabolism has dropped so much that we regain that weight and more. And so what we're trying to do, if you're at that low point where you've already lost the weight, we haven't done it in a healthy way. We've done it through a lot of stress and we've turned down our metabolic dial to do so. So we're going gaining a little bit of weight to get back to a better metabolic state before losing it again is probably a is probably a healthy way to do it. And that's probably going to be an inherent effect here, and that's all right. Uh one thing that I think can really help there is just keeping that long-term in mind when we're doing something that's sustainable and comfortable and feels good and improves our health. This isn't something that, that we're forced to make sure that we get to the end result in two months or three months, because this is something that is going to feel good lifelong and help our health in every way and our weight. So that sure, maybe in two months or three months, we haven't hit our weight goal yet, but maybe that's a year or two years. Maybe it's a slower process, but it's Healthy and it's sustainable. It's not something where you need it to happen now because you can't keep doing it. It's something that is actually going to be a lifelong situation so that you can stay at that goal weight. You know, you mm-hmm. can stay at that healthy
0: uh, weight. So. Well, like how you said, it's like more healthy and sustainable because as you go like through the process of eating more food, you're actually feeling a little bit better now that you have more food on board. You don't feel like you're starving yourself. And I think it's also important to note that when you were in that transitory state you were eating like upwards of like 500 or more carbohydrates but now that's like a little bit like reduced so can you talk about like when you started eating more carbohydrates how many you started with and then how many do you eat now if you had to guess yeah sure so
1: when I first so I was uh I mean I was pretty active at the time uh both weightlifting and also biking I was in college so you know biking to and from classes and things this was you know nine ten years ago Mm -hmm. and so i was relatively active and in the gym and had a decent amount of muscle mass Uh, but i when i first started bringing the carbs in i mean i slowly ramped it up and initially i had a pretty intense fear or i was taught that fructose was really harmful so at first i just tried increasing carbohydrates mostly from starches and glucose sources and then that didn't go so well i didn't feel as good i had a lot of digestive symptoms i did put on some weight and so then I ended up shifting toward a balance with some more sugar-based carbs from fruit and juice and honey and things like that, which felt way better and already helped to drop the weight. At this point, I was eating sometimes as much as 5,500 calories a day, sometimes as much as seven or 800 grams of carbohydrates a day. Um, it wasn't like that every day. It was, I would say on average, it was between 500 and 700 grams of carbs, uh, but it was quite a bit. I had quite a refeeding situation or like stage or period which i felt amazing i knew when i was going through it that this was getting me to an important place and it felt totally different from anything i had done before uh and then again as i said the weight started like my weight that had gone up maybe 30 pounds in total and that was some of that was muscle too but this was from a low point at, on keto where i was not only too lean but also uh, didn't have as like I was under muscled so to speak relative to later. I mean I put on a lot more without changing anything in the gym, but that weight started to come down long before I my calories reduced at all or my carbohydrate intake reduced uh, because my metabolism came up and I also shifted away from things that were irritating me digestively, and that allowed for me to to lean back out. So I stayed at that range for a while until. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty much around that point for a while. Maybe it decreased a little bit after that refeeding point, but it really wasn't that much. Nowadays, I don't eat as much, but I also, for a number of reasons, I, don't, I'm, I weigh 20 pounds less because mm. I didn't want to keep all that muscle on. It wasn't as good for uh, sports and, and things like that. So, yeah. um, But anyway, so now I
0: probably eat around 400 grams of carbs mm-hmm. most days. So one of the things I'm thinking about with just like eating a lot of carbohydrates, you normally eat more food and kind of like the whole point of like the keto and like fasting, intermittent fasting people is that like you kind of reduce your hunger and like your cravings and stuff. So can you explain why you would want an increased appetite and why eating more foods actually could be a good thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I was definitely
1: eating very little when I was... On keto is probably about 2,400 calories a day. So as I said,
0: that's a lot less than I was eating after that. I feel like some people would even say that's like a decent amount. Like a lot of people eat a lot less than that too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um,
1: Essentially, if we're coming back to a, a bigger picture of health and I think a better framework, the way that i would summarize it is that the more energy we produce the better health we have our health is dependent on how much energy we have available that allows for better function of all of our organ systems our immune system our brain function all of those things It helps to keep stress hormones down and essentially in order to produce energy we need to have enough fuel and so we have we can think of it as two different sides of the spectrum on one side we're in a stress state a more of a hibernation state A famine state, a starvation state, a low energy state where we are kind of running on, we're conserving as much fuel and energy as possible. Our metabolism is relatively low and we're just favoring the most important vital functions. And uh, that would be the state that I would say that we get from things like fasting and low carb, low calorie diets. On the other hand, we can do the opposite, right? We can decrease stress and have a high metabolic state where our thyroid activity is higher. Reproductive hormone activity is higher, and it, along with that, all of our organ functions are are increased and improved as well. And so, I would say that's the state that we want to favor. And if we can eat more food and maintain our weight, that's a sign that we're producing more energy and increasing our metabolic rate, which I would say is arguably a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was saying, just on one hand, based on the tenant that we uh, that that allows for better function, but also when we look at Things like aging um, as we age and by age you could say like degenerate as we degenerate, our ability to produce energy decreases, our appetite decreases. you know if you look at someone that's quite a bit older, they tend to eat a lot less, they tend to move a lot less, they tend to have a lot less energy, both you can see it visibly but also their they tend you know their appetite goes down their um, you know their their total metabolic rate goes down considerably. You compare that with, let's say, a child, they're in the exact opposite state, or even someone who's, let's say, in their late teens or 20s, so they're not growing anymore, but still have a much, much higher metabolic rate. And that's the type of metabolism that we want to imitate. And And the research suggests that when when we look between species, so like a rat versus an elephant, the higher metabolic rate is not ideal. This is, be, this is due to details of the physiology where th- something like a, a rat or a mouse, they have much less efficient energy production. So they're just wasting a lot of energy. But when you look within a species, like between all the rats or between all the dogs or all the elephants or all the humans, the ones that have the highest metabolic rates are the ones that age the slowest and live the longest. And that's because you have a relative constant in terms of the efficiency of energy production. So that's part of where the idea some of the conflation comes from is there used to be some ideas that the faster our metabolism the faster we age this was based on some extrapolated ideas based you know out of the industrial revolution looking at our bodies as machines that will just wear down over time and looking at some of this research where you know you look at a mouse that has a very high metabolic rate for its size and it doesn't have a long lifespan compared to a larger mammal but again there are some confounding variables there that weren't accounted for and as we've now looked and accounted for those things, we actually see that it's the higher metabolic rate
0: that does much better, lives longer, and ages slower. Hmm. So if the goal is to increase like, the metabolism pretty much, how would you go about doing that? And then what are some of the things that would slow down your metabolism?
1: So I think it's easier to start with the things that slow it down because in general, if we are providing what's needed and there aren't blocks on the system, the energy production is free-flowing we're streaming that energy through and producing a lot of energy so as long as we take the blocks out of the system and we provide the resources we're kind of good to go some of those blocks we've mentioned a few of the most common being caloric restriction like under eating uh, fasting low-carb diets uh, those are some of the most common, and that's because they all signal a stress state that tells our body to start to conserve energy because we don't know when we're getting more food, or we don't, we aren't in an abundant environment that has a lot of carbohydrates. So that's th- those are some of those breaks. There are some other things that inhibit our metabolism, or that inhibit our ability to produce energy. As I was saying, this could be things like nutrient deficiencies, it could also be certain things that interfere with our capacity for energy production. One of the ones that's starting to gain a little bit of recognition is the polyunsaturated fats, although I don't think they're gaining the recognition for this reason. Hmm. But essentially, the more polyunsaturated fats that we eat, this is the omega-6s and omega-3s, the less efficiently we produce energy, not to mention they're also very susceptible to damage, which is not ideal for energy production or for other reasons. And that would be one of the main ways that we could slow our metabolism down, is by consuming more of these. And when we come back to that research, looking at lifespan and aging across species, this is the one thing that has been found to be the biggest factor between species. When we look at the difference between rats and dogs and apes, for example, the higher amount of the polyunsaturated fats and the more unsaturated the structure of the cells are, the structure of the mitochondria are, the faster the aging, the faster uh, or the shorter the lifespan And the less efficient, the energy production. So the slower the metabolism, essentially. Or the problem there is it's less efficient metabolism, but they have to burn a lot of fuel to make up for that. So a mouse has a high metabolism, so to speak, but it's because they're wasting a lot of energy with inefficient respiration due to all the unsaturated fats in there uh, that they maintain in their mitochondrial membranes and, and plasma membranes. And so zooming back out, Consuming these fats is a really good way to interfere with our ability to produce energy and lower our metabolism. Mm. We also see this in different species where polyunsaturated fats are required for hibernation. So if we look at bears or uh, other animals that hibernate going into the winter, they tend to consume a lot of nuts, seeds, or in the case of bears, also a lot of salmon that are very high in the polyunsaturated fats and help to slow down their metabolic rate. And if they don't have the function of the omega-6s, for example, they won't be able to hibernate. Um, squirrels, while they don't hibernate, they put on a lot of weight and still slow their metabolism for the winter. Again, eating lots of seeds like acorns, things like that. So, this is also the general function for polyunsaturated fats in animals. And in the actual foods that we get them from as well, the polyunsaturated fats work as a hibernation sort of uh, function and to slow the metabolism. So, in the reason why we have higher polyunsaturated fats in seeds and nuts that are in cold temperatures is because they need to be able to make it through the cool winter and into the spring where they can then germinate in in coolish temperatures. When you look at the seeds and nuts from more tropical regions, like let's say coconut or cocoa, like chocolate, uh, those fats are much more saturated. They're very, very low in the polyunsaturated fats. And this is because for warm, high metabolic uh, regions, we don't want to have a lot of polyunsaturated fats. So with the idea that we want to keep our metabolism high we generally want to avoid or minimize the polyunsaturated fats it's a really big one and then there are a number of others one other that i think is really important to highlight is different toxins and i we have to be careful with the word toxins because i'll kind of clarify what i mean by that but certain toxins that are produced by bacteria or other microbes in the intestines in the gut and so these microbes especially when we have excessive amounts of them or we feed them excessively they will produce large amounts of toxic components and byproducts. One of the most noteworthy or that's important highlight is called lipopolysaccharide. It's also known as endotoxin. And this is something that will directly interfere with our capacity for energy production. So if we are consuming a lot of hard-to-digest foods and those are feeding bacteria, or if we're not breaking down the foods that are coming in very well, or if our mortality is low and that's led to overgrowth of bacteria, a number of other factors of our stomach acid is low, things like that, that will lead to excess bacteria and excess bacterial toxin production, which we then end up entering into our bloodstream and interferes with our capacity for energy production. And drives an inflammatory state, a high stress state. There's a number of other things too. We can talk heavy metals or uh, you know, poor sleep, any sort of stress will tend to interfere with our capacity for efficient energy production. But when it comes to keeping a high metabolism, having really good gut function, avoiding the polyunsaturated fats, doing the opposite of low carb diets and fasting, <laughs> so eating consistently getting enough carbohydrates in and calories in, those are some of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Making sure we have enough
0: nutrients, of course, too. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to touch on was just kind of like the calories in calories out paradigm and how people think that I don't know, like I'm going to go on the treadmill, burn this many calories, and then I can eat like a certain amount. And I've heard you say that actually like watching like a stimulating movie could have similar effects as far as caloric burn as moderate exercise. So can you explain just like how your brain like burns calories too and how like, I don't know, just how how it's kind of idiotic to like think that you can just go on a treadmill and then it's just like a math equation pretty much. So can you touch on that, please?
1: Yeah. So the biggest issue with looking at it as a math equation is we're ignoring that our bodies aren't just calculators. They aren't just calorie calculating machines. It's not We're not in the industrial evolution. We're not just some man-made machine. Instead, we're adaptable organisms that are constantly in interaction with their environment. So for example, if we go on a low-calorie diet and we've created this deficit, what happens is our bodies will turn down their metabolic rate. This is called metabolic adaptation where they'll turn down thyroid hormone activity and um, reproductive activity and things like that as a conservation mechanism. Because if we're starving, if we're in a low-calorie state, A, our bodies don't want to favor things like reproduction because it's not a good time to be reproducing. So that'll decrease libido and things like that. But they also don't have the extra energy to have good brain function and whatever else. They want to conserve fuel so they can survive. So the metabolic rate turns down. So you don't lose anywhere near as much weight as you're supposed to, and over time it gets you know it happens less and less to where your metabolic rate has decreased and now all of a sudden, before you lost weight, you know when you went on a sixteen hundred calorie diet, and now you're maintaining your weight there, and if you want to lose weight, you have to go even lower. That's the essential issue here is where we can't just say, well, I burn two thousand calories a day, so if I go in a five hundred calorie deficit, I'll just keep burning off extra fuel and lose all this body fat. Because our bodies adapt, and they try to hold on to that body fat harder and harder and tighter, because that's survival. They're trying to survive, and we see this in in a number of different studies. Looking at, for example, in rats when they put them on low calorie diets to lose weight, and then they have them regain the weight, and then lose the weight again, and regain the weight. Every time they go to lose the weight again, it gets many times harder to lose the weight. It requires either more restriction or for longer, and it's way easier to regain the weight. That's because the metabolic rate's turning down, and this is. One of the biggest issues is ignoring these adaptive effects from just looking at a calories in, calories out standpoint. So I would say that's, that's like the kind of bigger overview, but then it also ignores all of the other things that affect our metabolic rate and what happens to the fuel coming in. So if we're not, so the other assumption that's built in there is whatever fuel comes in will just be converted right to energy and then any extra gets converted to fat. But what actually happens is if we aren't effectively converting the fuel to energy, if there's issues with energy production, if there's mitochondrial dysfunction, then we aren't just producing all this energy and storing extra as fat. We're actually left with a very poor conversion to energy. So we have low energy. We're in a lack of energy. And we convert the fuel to fat because we can't convert it to energy. So we're in this really bad state where we've decreased energy, which means Low brain function and excess hunger because our hunger is dependent on ATP levels, how much energy we produce in the liver and in the brain and the hypothalamus. That's where our hunger signals are dictated. And not only that, but also we're not going to have energy to exercise and we're not going to be able to relax and sleep really well. And so we're left with low energy and storing body fat. And this is the worst situation that we can be in. It's not something that we want to be forcing or encouraging by just dropping calories. But instead, what we can do is do the reverse, where we improve our conversion of the food to energy, which essentially raises our metabolic rate. It means we can eat more food and produce more energy and store less as fat. So we can actually be losing fat while increasing our energy. And that would be, I think, a much better paradigm or lens through which
0: to be looking at it. Mm-hmm. We haven't touched on protein at all. What's your like, best protein sources that you think are like, pretty essential in your diet? And then how much protein do you look to get each day? So as far as protein
1: goes, I think it's definitely, I mean, as important as any other nutrient or macronutrient, but I do think sometimes it can be overemphasized where if it's kind of looked at as like the, the macronutrient that can do no harm, right? Everyone is always favoring protein. It could be a low carb, high protein, or low fat, high protein, or both. As long as, you know, if you're eating your chicken breast and salad, you're okay, but just force the protein. If you want to build more muscle, eat more protein. I, I think it's, yeah it's it's overemphasized, and uh, we can maybe dig into the issues with those ideas, but essentially, what I would say is, when it comes to our protein needs, we typically aren't going to benefit from getting any extra essentially, like protein is a building block for all of our tissue, our skin, our muscle, bone, all these things are made up of protein and other things and We have needs for protein, but we don't need anything beyond what those needs are. If we have enough of the resource, we have enough of the building blocks, it doesn't help us to have more. Um, It's not going to help us build more muscle or something like that. The amount of protein, unless we're really not eating enough, is almost never the issue there. Instead, the issue has to do with the hormonal state. If we've got a lot of cortisol, it's going to drive protein breakdown, Um, or if we're not getting enough stimulus, or if we're low in the reproductive hormones like testosterone, those things are going to more regulate muscle growth, let's say, rather than getting extra protein, as Mm -hmm. long as we have enough. So that's kind of the general framework. And we want to be careful with too much protein for a couple of reasons. One, it can, I would say one of the main reasons is it tends to lead to a lower calorie intake. It's very filling and we don't convert it to glucose very efficiently. We lose a lot of energy when we do that. And so if we want to go on a low calorie diet, jacking up the protein is a really easy way to do that. But as we were talking about, we don't want to be on a low-calorie diet. We want to increase our metabolic rate and produce more energy and feel better and improve our function. And so having excess protein tends to interfere with that. Uh, There can also be issues digestively, where if we're getting too much protein and not able to break it all down, it can ferment in the colon and lead to the production of some really harmful bacteria. So that's another factor to consider. When it comes to those needs, for most people... I recommend a range of 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein per pound of ideal body weight. So that tends to be lower than, you know, one gram per pound or other things that are sometimes recommended. But in the research, that's shown to be adequate. And this is looking at research in athletes, looking at research in uh, people looking to build muscle, you know, weightlifters and things like that, where there's no benefit to extra protein beyond that range. Actually, the, the level that they find that's like, Really, there's no benefit above is 0.63 grams per pound. And then there's just a little bit of a buffer there just in case. But it, it, we're really not going to benefit from extra protein. If we're getting any more, it tends to just come at the cost of getting carbs and fats, which we need to produce energy mm. and hormones and things like that. So that would generally be my uh, amount recommendation. And then as far as the types, all of this will sometimes vary based on the individual. But generally, I'd recommend low polyunsaturated fat meat. So this would be meat from beef or bison or goat, any ruminant animals. It could also be lean chicken or pork since those tend to be very, very high in polyunsaturated fats. But if we get a lean one, lean cut, then there won't be much fat in there. Uh, It can be eggs, dairy, low fat seafood again, because the fatty seafood tends to be very high in polyunsaturated fats. So those would be the typically the main protein sources that I would suggest. Hmm. And uh yeah, did that cover it all? I think those yeah, I think that's healthy. a
0: good protein breakdown. Cause I know a lot of people on like Twitter and other social media platforms were having like a little bit of a debate on like the fair life protein shake, but it seems like you wouldn't be that big of a fan since you since you only want to like get a certain amount anyway, you're probably not going for that maximum forty two grams per each bottle. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know what the debate's about. But
1: yeah, I think very few pe- there's very few people who I work with where we need to bring in some sort of protein supplement because we're not trying to overdo it. Again, hitting that 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 gram range is pretty comfortable for most people if they're eating enough meals, You know, just a few meals in a, in a day, and getting some decent protein sources unless they're vegetarian or something like that, then it's tougher. Uh, the only other caveat I would say is that there's also differences in types of protein, and it's really important to get enough protein from connective tissue So this would be collagen and gelatin. You can get those as protein powder supplements or uh, from bone broth or meat that has more of the gelatin in it, which tends to be the tougher cuts like roasts and uh, shanks and things, which if you slow cook them, they're really tender and those tend to be higher in the connective tissue. So it is important to get that as well but uh yeah it sounds like the fair life shake shakes or drinks are probably unnecessary i don't know what else is in there
0: but. yeah the debate was pretty much like one side was saying like oh just have like normal milk and honey and the other group was like no nah, we need the 42 grams with all the artificial sweeteners and everything else that's in it but i, I think it would also be a, kind of useful to touch on like calcium because i know you've <laughs> talked about that before and a lot of people avoid milk or i know for myself um, before I started like getting into this more, um, this new diet, like the bioenergetic kind of view, I was not really drinking much milk at all, and I would only drink if it was raw. So can you kind of touch on calcium and milk in general and dairy products?
1: Yeah. So for one, I think dairy gets a bad rap, um, and that's because some people can have issues digesting it, actually a good amount of people, but A, we can typically improve our capacity for Di- uh, for dairy digestion and reduce our immunoreactivity if that's an issue, which is I think a much rarer issue. Normally there's a lactose issue, um, but essentially what I would say is dairy is a really great food. So it has a bunch of micronutrients that are tough to get elsewhere. Calcium being the main one, but it's also a good source of things like potassium as well, which there are a lot of other sources of potassium, but um, it's a good source of a bunch of different vitamins and minerals, as well as uh, as well as decent protein, fat, and carb source as well. So what I would say when it comes to dairy is we do want to be careful. Some people get excited about the the idea of bringing dairy back in and just hop into lots of milk. And that can go really well for some, but for others, if they aren't digesting that lactose well, then instead of them breaking it down and absorbing it, it ends up feeding bacteria, tending to lead to a lot of digestive symptoms like bloating, gurgling, gas, uh, irritation. And also often weight gain as well. So it's one that we want to be careful with, introduce slowly, try different types and see how we respond. Some people do a lot better with A2 versus A1 dairy due to the reactivity to casein uh, or the type of casein. And so, yeah, it's something that can be a little bit trickier. It's much easier to say, just eat some some meat. Like fewer people are going to have issues there. But yeah, I'm a big fan of dairy. I think it's when we can get to a point where we can introduce it and do well with it, it's a really helpful food group to have. Um, normally it's easiest to start with something like hard cheeses, which are going to not really have any lactose. And you can use that as a test to see how you do with a one versus a two cheeses. Uh, but that way you'll still get things like the calcium and the protein and things like that. Mm. Uh, And then you can try to branch
0: into other types potentially. Uh, one of the food groups we haven't touched on yet is vegetables. So can you kind of dive into if you eat any vegetables or if you do, which ones you would recommend eating? Yeah, so vegetables are in some ways in that similar category
1: to protein where it was kind of like protein vegetables always had the like a clear uh, conscience, right? Like you could eat as much of those. There's never anything negative, although that started to shift in the alternative sphere as low carb, not as much paleo. But once we got into keto and especially carnivore, there was then a lot of negative ideas around uh, plants and plant foods and vegetables. and There's value in, and I think a lot of the different ideas there, where there are certain anti nutrients in mostly raw vegetables, like raw leafy greens, like kale and spinach, especially like those things are very high in certain anti nutrients. And a lot of other raw vegetables as well, you know, especially in the cruciferous family, things like that, they will have anti thyroid compounds and, you know, other things that will inhibit digestion. So we want to be careful with vegetables. However, if we're cooking them, and we're okay with the fiber in there, meaning that we don't have any microbial overgrowth or imbalances, then I think it's really helpful to have some amount of vegetables. I normally look at them as a supplement to the diet where we're getting a bit of fiber, which again is beneficial if our gut is in a good spot. We're getting some polyphenols, we're getting some micronutrients, and if they're cooked, we're really minimizing the antinutrients. So I think most people when they get to that point are totally fine having you know, a serving of vegetables alongside their their dinner right as long as they're not focusing on vegetables as like the mainstay of their diet um, some people yeah really benefit from that i also think we can generally be totally healthy without them mm. but i do think it's helpful to get a fiber source whether it's from whole fruit or root vegetables or like more classic vegetables uh, to help support the microbiome and the
0: gut if like once we get to a healthy spot with our microbiome mm. One of the concepts I've kind of heard you touch about that I never really thought about was like the food supply and just how it's not that good because a lot of foods are like I don't know filled with toxins and stuff like that. So how would you recommend people get the best quality food for themselves and their family?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one um you know depending on someone's circumstances and what they can afford and what's available i mean the The average food supply in most places is pretty rough uh what i would say so when it comes to maybe a place to start would be organic versus non-organic you can look into which produce is most important to be organic based on the pesticide use so ewg has like a clean 15 list and a dirty dozen list which discuss which produce we especially want to make sure we're getting organic and which ones it doesn't matter as much because there's not as much pesticide use so it's one thing to consider. Uh, it's just a starting place, especially if you can't afford for everything to be organic and maybe you don't have it available. So that information is helpful to have. I think that there's there's some other places where we where like quality doesn't matter as much. So for example, if we're talking about meat, if we have really well pastured chicken that's not fed grains, and uh, then the polyunsaturated fat level will be much lower. So, that's a situation where it makes a big difference. Same thing with chicken eggs. Whereas with meat, with beef, if it's grass fed versus grain fed, it's not really going to affect the fat composition and generally doesn't matter quite as much. Mm -hmm. So, if we're looking for a place to maybe save a bit of money, like we can get non grass fed beef, and that's generally okay if we need, you know, as far as those choices go. So, it really depends on the food group. I would say, in general, if we can get local grass fed, pasteurized meat, that's best. Same thing with dairy. But again, uh, if we don't have that available, conventional dairy is not going to have an issue as far as the fats go. Um, there's still other concerns, like humane concerns and things like that, that are totally legitimate. But as far as the nutritional side goes or the health side, that's where it matters a little bit less. Um, when it comes to you know juices and fruits, again, same thing. It depends. Some of them there's a lot of pesticide use, so I wouldn't be getting non-organic berries because A, they're not going to be that dense in carbohydrates. So we don't need them as a carb source. And B, there's generally a lot of pesticide use. So if we're going to get our uh, berries, I would say it's important to get organic, or we can skip it and go toward other uh, fruit sources that are maybe going to be more dense and maybe don't have to be organic. But in general, I would lean toward organic produce when possible. It's generally going to be better quality. It's generally going to be picked when it's ripe, generally going to be grown in the right season. And have more nutrients as well, as well as fewer anti-nutrients, which not only exist in the vegetables, but can also exist in unripe fruit as well. So there's a lot of different considerations there. You could also consider, as I was saying, seasonality and ripeness, which not only varies with organic versus non-organic, but also just the quality of produce you have at any time. And so if you don't have good quality ripe fruit available you might want to lean into dried fruit or frozen fruit or fruit juice Mm. all of which can be picked when they're ripe and then stored so that way you can get the ripe fruit with you know it's just not fresh but still get all those same nutrients and get the good carbohydrates and things like that so yeah i guess that's a few considerations i don't know if you had any more specific things in mind
0: no i think that that touched on it um as far as like cooking oils which ones do you think are the like mainstays in your diet? Cause I know I've kind of transitioned from like the, the Pam oil spray a few years ago, which is definitely not one of the options we would recommend, but then animal fats and then now like coconut oil and other others. So what would you recommend?
1: Yeah. So we generally want to favor very low PUFA fats. And when it comes to cooking, I would try to favor more saturated fats. So beef tallow, coconut oil and butter or ghee would typically be the best options um avocado oil and uh olive oil could be okay secondary options avocado oil does have a decent smoke point but i'd prefer to use something like ghee uh, or those other oils if you don't need as high of a smoke point but yeah when it comes to the like olive oil avocado they're okay i wouldn't want to make those primary fat sources because they still have about 10 percent pufa but they're, they're okay as like you know more minor fat sources and macadamia nut oil i probably wouldn't cook with but it is mostly just monounsaturated with nearly no pufa so that's an okay fat source as well if you need uh, another fat source that's not a saturated fat but yeah generally when it comes to cooking we could keep it simple butter and ghee uh, coconut oil Mm -hmm. beef tallow or other tallow Mm -hmm.
0: one of the last things i wanted to touch on was just like stress in general and whether or not it's like adaptive or not so Mm -hmm. something like bodybuilding or going to the gym where you're actually like increasing muscle which is probably going to increase your metabolism stuff might be beneficial but what are some of the things that people talk about that are like pretty like common mainstream that you might you might say i wouldn't recommend doing to someone that you were coaching or giving advice to
1: yeah when it comes to
0: this idea here with the stress and hormesis
1: is essentially the the scientific concept that i have quite a few disagreements with. I think the most important point to consider is when it comes to something like exercise or anything that induces some stress, the benefit is not actually from the stress. It's from other effects from that stimulus. So when it comes to exercise, we're not just benefiting because we're burning calories or increasing stress. Rather, we're we're benefiting by providing stimulation to the musculoskeletal system, the musculofascial system, and that has various unique effects. And so we've... Due to various issues with research and whatnot, we 've conflated this idea where we start to attribute the benefits of various interventions, like calorie restriction or fasting or exercise to the stress they cause rather than to other effects, where with calorie restriction, there's benefits to lowering certain amino acids in the diet, there's benefits to relief from, from you know gut health issues, and there's other research design problems when it comes to low carb diets or fasting diets, we get a lot of benefit from the relief to our gut. And also, if we're having issues utilizing carbs, it's helpful to have another fuel source in the meantime. So we have some benefits there that have nothing to do with the stress that are, that's being caused. And so because of this conflation that's happened, we now have various interventions that are aimed at just increasing stress and saying that these things are good because they're causing stress. And so in general, I would lean away from anything that is just doing that. Things like fasting, low-carb, low-calorie diets. Also, certain supplements that are supposed to be hormetic like resveratrol, uh, as well as other things like cold plunges, you know, cold thermogenesis, where the stress itself there is, I would say, is really not beneficial. I don't think there's good evidence for cold exposure to be beneficial. It just increases stress and increases the metabolic rate temporarily via, via increasing stress hormones, and I don't think that's an optimal thing. Uh, The one, you know, some people argue that it's, you know, they're doing it for the mental effect and trying to overcome things and build their mental resilience, which I think is a kind of independent of whether this is helping them physiologically in their health. So if someone wants to do it for that reason, then fine. But I would say that we don't want to be doing those sorts of things just out of this idea that they're causing stress. Mm. Uh, But it really is a situation where we have to identify each intervention separately, because if we talk about red light or infrared saunas. There could be a ton of benefits there that are not because they're causing stress. It's due due to independent effects that are stimulating respiration, increasing energy, um, or just benefits from increasing the body temperature that have nothing to do with stress that's being caused. Mm-hmm. So it really requires evaluating each uh, intervention independently. but. I would be very weary as a starting place. I would have a default skepticism for anything that we're doing under the guise of hormesis or the guise that there's, it's causing some stress that we adapt to that makes us stronger. Mm. Uh, anything that is being purported to be beneficial for that reason, I would take caution. So you're saying it could be healthy to like, relax
0: and lower your stress? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, yeah. Doesn't, that doesn't seem like it fits in the modern way. You have to be yeah. going at all times. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think, one of the, the
1: uh, huge problem that most people are facing. And also one of the issues with the conceptual idea of hormesis is that most people are under so much stress, not only psychologically, but definitely psychologically, also due to issues with food supply, due to constant pesticide exposure and chemical exposure, due to not getting enough nutrients in. And then we're just supposed to add stress on top of that. That's how we get healthier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, most people would probably benefit from Meditation, relaxing, sunlight, getting outside just in general,
0: Um, you know, breathing, like working through a different breathing exercises, things like that. I have noticed too, since I started introducing more carbohydrates, just feeling like I'm more in tuned with like my stress levels in general. Whereas before I didn't, I was doing a lot of fasting. So I'd fast throughout the morning until like 11am and a lot of um, coffee on empty stomach, which. I kind of wanted to ask you about too, is just like um, how, what you view about your view on coffee, but just in general, like being more in tune with my stress when I was able to realize, oh, I wake up and I'm a little bit stressed. I have some food and then it goes down. um So, can you touch on that?
1: Yeah, that is uh, what you're getting at is something that's really important, which is that when we're in constant stress, when we're running on stress hormones, when we're fasting and using coffee on an empty stomach, We're on a low-carb diet, and we're just making it through the days like that. We feel okay. We feel energetic. We don't realize that we're running on stress hormones sometimes Mm. until we don't or until we do, where sometimes it gets to a point where it leads to insomnia, and it leads to inabilities to relax, and it leads to low libido and issues like that. And then we're starting to recognize that there's some excess stress going on, Uh, or we start to shift out of that state and then we can actually recognize when we go back in it. You know, so bringing the carbs in, we start to shift out of that stress state. And then if we try to have coffee on an empty stomach, we'll realize, wow, I'm really jittery and I'm anxious and irritable and I have high stress hormones right now. Or if you just go a really long time, or maybe even not that long, if you go a while without eating, you realize, wow, I'm not feeling as good. My energy is a bit lower. That's not a bad thing. It means that your body's asking for more fuel, and that's how we keep our metabolic rate up. So Yeah, there's a a big shift that can start to happen. And when we start to notice that shift, it tends to be a really good sign in terms of the healing journey. It tends to mean that we're really shifting out of that stress state, which sometimes can take longer than others. But yeah, it's a really important distinction. And along with the whole inducing stress paradigm, the hormesis paradigm, I mentioned breathing. And one one thing that's important to mention is a caveat there or a, a really clear distinction. If we're talking about something like Wim Hof breathing, Wim Hof breathing is intentionally done to increase stress and hypoxia. And this is well-recognized in the research looking at Wim Hof breathing is it increases adrenaline dramatically, it increases stress hormones. And this is by causing hypoxia because you blow off all your CO2 and CO2 is necessary for our cells to get oxygenated. So when we're talking about breathing for relaxation or for health, we want to be doing the opposite of Wim Hof breathing, which is like hyperventilation. Instead, we want to have really slow, controlled, gentle breathing, especially nasal breathing. Uh, there's a method of breathing called buccal breathing, which is oriented toward increasing the retention of CO2, of carbon dioxide, which helps our oxygenation. That would be a method that I would, con- you know, recommend looking into for anyone who's interested. But again, just a important that you know recognizing how much this hormetic, the hormetic ideas are seeping into every area of uh, of
0: health. Yeah. So. it seems like it's mostly like trying to find ways to affect stuff as far as like increasing stress when it should have just, we should have just lowered our stress to begin with and not had to deal with doing all these extra things. But I think what happens is a lot of people get to that point where they just feel so out of touch with health that they need to like, kind of do something extra, like kind of like a a last ditch effort. I know for myself, it was like a lot of like, just like, dent, like really strict like caloric restriction because for 18 years I had been in such a horrible place. So is your suggestion pretty much like if someone is in like that bad state of health to just think about the long-term strategy and just keep going like one day at a time pretty much? Definitely.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can be... We might... We want to be feeling better. Like we definitely want to be feeling better. We want to have improvements as we're going and we should be noticing improvements even in the short term Mm -hmm. but it's not a what we're not looking for here is a short-term fix normally short-term fixes are not long-term fixes normally they're the opposite of long-term fixes so with any long-term fix there's going to be a transitionary period things aren't going to typically flip around right away we're talking about slowly building up our health and so yeah keeping the long-term in mind you know one day at a time there's a number of different things like that but ideally, most people are feeling better and feeling different immediately. It just might take some time to get all the way there.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Jay. I hope some people can, I don't know, take this and two, old, two guys who used to be low carb, maybe just convince some people to try eat some carbs again, start to feel a little bit better. But thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Luke, thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening all the way through this episode. I hope you will stay tuned for future episodes as I'm going to start releasing here with a consistent schedule and getting back into it with this new name. It's really got me fired up to start helping people out. So if you enjoyed, leave a five star review. If you want to get in touch with me, you can in the comments below or with a Instagram or Twitter message, or you can tell a friend or just shoot me a DM or whatever. Peace, guys.